lot of you probably think that we put this up there because the guy who actually played Darth Vader uh, in the costume passed away, I think, yesterday. Uh, but this was picked uh, a week, actually three weeks ago, this video. So uh, anyway, there's no tribute to him in this. I just wanted an easy way for you to reflect on God's Word and as it relates to what we're going to be looking at today. So go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6. Now, I don't know about you, but during this time uh, of Thanksgiving and Christmas and then we roll into New Year's, this is a time of year in which I do a lot of evaluating uh, my life. And I evaluate, you know, how last year went and how, what I'm hoping will happen in 2021. I look at the finances. I look at my spiritual life. I look at all aspects. Of course, I'm already looking at how I need to get in better shape for 2021 and all these things. But as I was doing a little reflecting over this past year, I don't know if it's COVID. I don't know if my testosterone is dropping. I don't know what's going on. But right now, I'm caught up in the series, Downton Abbey. I've been watching that, <laughs> binge watching that, and something is going on. I don't know what is going on with me, but I would never have watched that just a couple years ago. I've actually tuned into some Hallmark movies. Uh, my mind is just being blown away by this new season I am in my life. And uh, I tell you, it's very disturbing as uh, I make my way through it. How many of you men have watched Downton Abbey? Raise your hand. Oh, yeah, there's so many. And every one of you looks like you're over the age of 50. And so, uh, yeah, it's happening, isn't it? But anyway, all right. Well, today we're continuing the series, This Means War. We're in our very last part of that series, and it's actually the part that probably means the most as it relates to spiritual warfare. Today we're looking at the battle gear. Uh, you know, there's really, when I think about what's the most important message a pastor can preach to people who are sitting in the congregation, I think the number one message would be to present the plan of salvation, to tell someone how they can have eternal life. But if you were to say, okay, what would be the second message you would give a, 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 a church congregation or individual, it would be what we're talking about today. The whole idea of what it means when it comes to spiritual warfare and the battle gear that we are to take on. So look at the introduction. As already stated, we need to be aware and alert that we're in a battle for our soul. We war against the enemy, the world, and our flesh. And we've looked at that over the last several weeks. There, these must be fought with the gear given to us by God. And so basically God through the Apostle Paul, uh, has given us what we need to stand up in the battle, okay? But what kind of battle are we talking about? Look here at Ephesians chapter 6, look at verse 10. Paul says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, what's interesting about this whole idea, when it says be strong, there's the idea that what he's referring to here is to abide. It's the same principle that we find in John chapter 15. So when he says be strong, he's saying in the Lord. He's saying uh, abide in the Lord. Because when we abide in the Lord, that's where the power comes from. That's where the ability to stand up to temptation comes from. 
That's where we're able to, in the midst of everything that we're dealing with, we are, current, we are able to deal with the hardships of this life. And so he basically said, be strong, how? In the power of the Lord, uh, excuse me, in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Now think about that. Put on this whole armor. And then he says that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now the word wiles there can mean schemes. It could be the plotting of the enemy, the plotting of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Uh, what he's saying there, he's not saying that we don't necessarily, we do. We battle against flesh and blood. We've already determined that. But what he's saying is we're missing the point of this big battle out there if we think it just stops there. He says, for we do not just wrestle against uh, flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. And then he says, as a result of that, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, withstand the, in the evil day and having done all to stand. Now, there's several things here in verse 13 that are very important that we take from this. Notice he says, take up the whole armor of God. What that means is this armor is complete. If, if a soldier goes out and he doesn't have his full armor on, that means there's a weakness that can be exposed. That means there's an avenue in which the enemy could, could take that person out. And so he's saying, put it all on. You, you're going to need to be protected in so many different ways. And then when he says that you may be able to stand, he's talking about that you may be able, may able to be steadfast, that you need to realize that there's a struggle when it comes to battling spiritual warfare. And so he's very clear on that. Now, there's some other places that, that Paul gives us some insight into this battle. In Galatians chapter 5, he says, I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the, lust of the, fle <laughs> For the flesh, lust against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. They're literally fighting against one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. There's times where you just fail at it, to be honest with you. And he's basically saying that you need to continue to war against it. You don't just give in to it. You're intentional. You realize it's a struggle, and you continue to fight. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we read this a couple weeks ago, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We're not, there's no battle that we're going to win just in and of ourselves or of the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And we discussed this last week. So, what do we use to fight this battle? What have we been given to fight this battle? The first thing that we've been given is the belt of truth. And we find that in the scripture. Now, let me show you here in this picture here, the belt of truth. If you'll see there, you'll see that there's a belt that goes around uh, the soldier there. Now, the best we can tell... Paul, we believe, was imprisoned when he wrote this letter. And so, therefore, by being imprisoned, he would have seen a lot of Roman centurions, okay? And it's possible that he just kind of took his, his notes from that and said, okay, let me, let me compare what the Christian battle looks like as what a Roman soldier would wear. And you see that there's a belt there that he's wearing. Now, the Roman warrior wore a short skirt much like a Scottish kilt. Now, you'll see that. Over the kilts, they wore a cloak or a tunic. A leather belt was then worn over the cloak around the waist so that it could be tucked into the belt when going into battle. The leather belt basically held everything together. 
The whole, when you think about what, what was on him that would hold it together, it would hold the, the sword, it would hold the breastplate, it would hold everything together. Now, he had leather straps ha uh, hanging down, and you can see that there. And coins, if you could look closely enough, coins were added to the belt to note the soldier's previous victories in battle. And so what you have there is that belt and all that's contained there. Now, just as the leather belt, just as leather belt, truth holds everything together. Think about it. It's called the belt of truth. If you really put that in your own life, here's what we need to realize. Truth holds relationships together. You, you can't have a healthy relationship built on lies. You can't have one that's built on deception. It, the healthiest of relationship is built on truth. Literally, truth also holds a person's sanity. It's the truth. It's what we need. Paul reminds us in Galatians chapter 6, he says, don't be deceived. Over and over again, Paul in every letter says something along these lines. Don't be deceived. Quit buying into the lies. In John chapter 8, we read that the enemy, according to Jesus himself, said that the enemy was the father of lies. The word father there, the way it's intended, he's the originator of the greatest lies that many people believe. Now, truth, therefore, must be at the core of who we are. Now, how do we deal with truth? Look on your outline. First of all, we need to know the truth, the total truth of God's Word, okay? So, so here, let's go back to this, this idea. So, so he says uh, in verse 14, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Now, so how do you do that? N number one, you got to know the truth of God's Word. The problem with many Christians, many professing Christians, is the fact that they just don't know the Word. They don't know the Word. They don't make investments in the Word. Now, I've heard of people who, who, who read a lot of books about the Bible, and that, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with Bible studies about the Bible and all that. But the thing is, you got to just get to the bare basics of the Bible. You need to know the Word, the content of the Word. And there's so many things that are there. So we need to know the Word. We need to build our whole worldview and how we see things and how we react to things around God's Word, that truth. Next, we need to live the total truth of God's Word. And notice how I chose the word total truth. Total truth. So many of us, we live in a day and age in which we handpick truth. We, we don't take truth as a whole. If we don't like this part of truth, we just justify it somehow, or we rationalize it, or we cut it away, and we, we choose to live a different way. But it's the total truth. Speaking of the nation of Israel, the Old Testament records this phrase probably as much as any other phrase in the Old Testament. It says, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, the way they wanted it to be. And I'm afraid many Christians have taken on that same approach. Number three, declare the total truth of God's Word. That's something that rests on teachers. That's something that rests on me uh, as a teacher of God's Word. I, I, can't, uh, I can't just pick and choose. I have to preach the whole counsel of God, as difficult as that may be. But not only that, you're called to declare it too. And, and here's why. If we're not declaring the truth, guess what we're doing for many people that God's placed in our influence? We have become a part of the deception they're living under. We must present truth. It's not just given to the pastor that stands in front of people on Sunday morning. We, if we know the truth, 
We are to present the truth. And if we don't present the truth, there, in many cases, the people that God's given us influence over, then we aid them in the deception in which they live. So we must declare the truth. The bottom line is this. We need to be committed to the truth of God's word. Psalms 51.6, King David wrote this. Behold, you, God, you desire truth in my inward parts. You desire truth at the core of who I am. That's what you desire. Next, we see the breastplate of righteousness. If you look here at the picture once again, you see the breastplate there. Uh, and it's there. It almost looks like a, a, a shoulder pads and a, 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 for a football player. But there's the, the breastplate. Now, the breastplate protects the vital organs. Look at what he says in verse 14. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, what's interesting about that is that breastplate, if you look closely, is held where in place by that belt of truth. So, the belt of truth is what holds the whole idea of our righteousness, okay, is where it's found. So, the best way to protect uh, the soldier or the warrior is to wear the breastplate. It, it protects the heart. Now, why the word righteousness? Why is that there? The breastplate of righteousness. Now, now so many times in the Christian community, we throw this word around all the time. And for a lot of people, they don't really understand what's the concept of righteousness. Well, let me give you some clues. It's the opposite of lawlessness, okay? So, it's something that's lawless means it's, it's something that's acted out in rebellion or against the law, okay? It could be the law of God, the law of government, whatever it may be. So, it's the opposite of lawlessness. But it means, the word righteousness literally means to, to conform to the truth commands and claims of a higher authority. And in that case, we're speaking of God and his word, okay? So righteousness is God's way of protecting us. Righteousness protects us from the consequences of sin. According to God's word, listen, we in and of ourselves, we have no righteousness. You say, now wait a second. I'm a moral person. Well, we're not talking about just morality. We're talking about righteousness, we're talking about supreme authority that basically holds truth and, and, and says we must conform to that truth. And we see it so clearly. So according to God's word, we have no righteousness in and of ourselves. We're not the one to set the terms of what is righteous. Okay? Isaiah 64, 6 says this. But we are all like an unclean thing, something that's been defiled. And our righteousness are like filthy rags. Therefore, it appears, when you think about it, we have a problem when it comes to righteousness. But that's where Jesus comes in. There's two types of righteousness that we find in Scripture that is basically given to the Christian. Okay? The first is something called imputed righteousness. Look on your outline. Imputed righteousness. It means to ascribe something, namely Jesus' righteousness, to someone who is not capable of living the standard of God's righteousness. Now, here's what the Bible says about us. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We don't measure up to the standard of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. None of us are moving in the direction in which we totally have conformed to his truth, his command, and his claims. We are hopeless in that situation. But there's one who came on the scene who was perfect in all that. And his name was Jesus. 
And so Jesus' righteousness, those 33 years that we know he lived upon the face of the earth, he lived the righteousness of God perfectly. And as a result of knowing him as our Lord and Savior, it has now been imputed upon us his righteousness. Why? Because our righteousness got us nowhere. It never measured up. Never measured up. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for he... God the Father made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become or be made or to be the righteousness of God in him or through him. So our righteousness did not, it was not created from within us. The righteousness that we have has been imputed upon us. It's been given to us. Now, as a result, we now have the right standing before God the Father. We couldn't pull it off. Jesus did. Because we've come to know him as our Lord and Savior, that righteousness has been given to us. Now we are declared righteous based on the authority of God's word. Next, there's something called imparted righteousness. And it literally means to give something, namely the power, to someone to enable them to overcome their flesh and sin. So it's not only imputed on us that now we're declared righteous, it's imparted upon us that we now know, we know, we don't know how, no longer have to be a slave to sin. We, we now can move in the direction God desires for us. The Bible calls it our sanctification. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. The Bible also says it's that idea of becoming more like Christ. We begin to conform to God's truth, his claims. And his commands. Now, the Bible says in John 1 12, here's how that's put. But as many as received him, that means you've come to terms with what God says in which you can become righteous, okay? For as many have done that, to them he gave the power or the right to become children of God. He basically said, This is your new reality to those who believe in his name. So, Basically, it, the whole idea of imputed righteousness has been given to us. Imparted righteousness means that the reality of the righteousness of Christ can now be our reality. We have that potential. Now, let me ask you this. Has any of you lived that perfectly since you come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? No, we still fail at it, don't we? That's where the imputed, imputed righteousness comes in. We're declared righteous already. Now we've been given the imparted righteousness of the power that we don't have to live there any longer. That now we can live in the reality of what Christ has provided. And that's what he's talking about here. Next, we see the shoes of the gospel of peace. Look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. He says, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Look here at the picture. You'll see. Uh, the shoes there. Now, what's interesting about the shoes, and many of them would say uh, probably earlier in this, it would have been sandals, basically. But, but if you ask any general of infantry soldiers, they will tell you that good footwear is a must for victory. Now, you would think, really? Something like that? Yeah, it, it really is. The Roman soldier was no exception. History records that the military successes of the great generals Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar were duly large, largely to the fact that their, uh, their armies had the ability to undertake long journeys at incredible speeds. And it's because they had the right shoes that made it possible. 
Josephus, a Jewish historian of the first century, tells us that the Roman soldier's shoes were sandals with thick soles and literally sharp nails in the bottom to keep them from falling in battle. So when they were to go into battle, they would literally put nails into the soles of those shoes for them to, to, to have strength so they wouldn't fall over. It's very comparable to football cleats. It's like an offensive lineman. You ever seen an offensive lineman? I mean, some of these guys, uh, 300 and some pounds, and they're holding back the defensive line. And they're holding back and they're holding back. The only way they can do that is they have to have good footing. And it's the whole idea of cleats holding their ground. So the shoes of the gospel of peace is a picture of a trusting confidence in the promises of God. It literally, it's literally the idea of standing on the promises of salvation but not just salvation, it's privileges, the privileges of salvation. In Ephesians, Paul tells us how we are to walk when it comes to this life as a warrior. Look, look here. First of all, we're to walk in good works. Turn over to Ephesians 2.10. For many of you, it's just one page. The Bible says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus Four good works which God prepared for beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are a warrior, much like you see in the picture. We're a warrior, and as a result of that, we are walking as a warrior. And, and he says, first of all, four good works. Second of all, to walk worthy of your calling. Look at Ephesians 4.1. I therefore, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, beg you, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. The, real, the calling here is literally the idea of something we've been called into. We've been called into, think of this, into the privileges of salvation. We've been called into the family of God, if you really want to put it there. And so he says, walk worthy of that. Next, walk differently than the world. Look at verse 17 of chapter 4. He says, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. He's talking about when he says Gentiles, he's talking about those outside the faith, those who've never had this salvation. Don't walk like them. They walk in the futility of their mind. That means there's no purpose. It's all living opposite of the reality of God and faith. Next, he says to walk in love. Look at Ephesians 5, 2. He says, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. He's talking about that our lives should be the epitome of sacrifice, and that sacrifice begins with loving him, loving one another. So walk in love. Next, we're to walk in the light. And this is important. Look at verse 8 of chapter 5. He says this, for you were once darkness. That's what you once were. You lived in darkness. Deception was all around you. Many of you were living in the lies of this world, the lies of the enemy. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children in the light. Walk in this new reality that's been given to you. And then next he says, walk carefully. Walk carefully. In Ephesians chapter 5, if you were to look at verse 15, he says, See then that you walk circumspectly. That means carefully. Not as fools, but as wise. Not as fools. Think about it. But as wise. We're wise. 
in what we're doing. We're living in the reality of what God has prepared. Next, we see the shield of faith. If you look at the picture here, you'll see the, the shield there. And, and it's interesting about the shield. There's a whole lot there. Look at verse 16. He says, above all, or basically in addition to, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, of the enemy. Now, the Roman soldier literally had two different kinds of shields. They had one which was small and round, and it was more for hand-to-hand -hand combat, okay? And they could take that round shield, basically, and they can push on the, the, the one they're having hand-to-hand -hand combat with. They can move it very easily, and then they had the sword, and they could fight. But there was another shield that was large enough, and this is kind of what you see here. And when several soldiers stood in, in a battle formation, they were literally capable of building a wall with these shields to, to protect themselves. Okay? Now, the surface of the shield was either a type of metal, later it became that, or leather-covered wood. Many of the shields were of certain colors to identify whether you were an ally or the enemy. And so there was that who you aligned with was on the shield itself. So the whole reality of the war, if you think about it, when he says the shield of faith, the whole reality of the war is done by faith. How do we know that? Ephesians 11, excuse me, Hebrews 11:6. But without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder to those who diligently seek him. And let me tell you something that may amaze you. This whole idea of diligently seeking him many times is through the lens of war, through the lens of being a warrior. We're diligently seeking him. How are we seeking him? Even in the trenches of war, even in the trenches when the enemy's throwing everything he's got at us. We're still there holding the line of faith. So the shield of faith, if you look at verse 16, catches the lies of the enemy in midair, knocks them down to the ground, and raises up truth. My question to you is this. What is the enemy or this world pitching at you? What are you, what are you battling right now with? Well, let me just say this. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I've said this a million times, you're a target for the enemy. You're a target. He's coming after you. He comes after you. You say, nah, I'm not, even, I'm not even aware of that. Well, then you might want to check on the salvation thing. Because you are someone, if you come to salvation in Jesus Christ, you're someone who should be magnifying his name, who should be magnifying him. And he'll do everything in his power to keep that happening through your life. And for many of us, that's what we're battling. We're battling that. So what is he shooting at you to test your faith? What's he doing to you? During the Vietnam War, a standard operating procedure for the Vietnamese was to try to break down prisoners' mentality. And they captured many U.S. soldiers. To do this, think about what they did. Hour after hour, they would pump, they would pump propaganda 
lies into the prisoner's cells through loudspeakers and interrogators, telling them that the government, the U.S. government was of monsters and devils, that the military had forgotten them, that they had, were listed as killed in action and there would be no attempts to reach them, that their families were no longer concerned about them, that their families have already moved on past them. And they would hear that over and over again. The POWs, the ones that would survive, the ones who did the best of surviving were the ones that were able to identify the lie and replace it with the truth. That was where the battle was fought in the mind. And so they would hear these lies over and over again and over and over again. And literally what they would have to do was replace it with what they knew as it's the truth. So by focusing on truth through the eyes of faith, these POWs overcame their brutal captivity. And y'all, we must do the same in the battles that we face. How many of you know that there's lies that are all around us? And there's lies that many of you are believing and you've been believing for years. It could have originated with your parents. It could have originated with a teacher who told you you're no good or whatever. But somewhere along the line, Many Christians are believing the lies of the enemy, and they need to be replaced with truth. In verse 16, if you look there, he talks about these fiery darts. The fiery darts were literally, now this is what was amazing about the battles that they would face. They would put on the the arrows, they would put pitch, okay? And they would put on the end of the arrow, and then they would light it on fire, and then they would shoot it. And whatever it would hit, the pitch would fly off and burn people severely if they were in the way. And so even though you were blocking it with the shield, it could still hit the shield and and glance off and hit the other soldiers. And so there was all these things. But my question is this, what kind of darts are coming your way? They say the best way to help deal with that was to take the shield and dip it in water before you went to battle to extinguish it. For some of us, you know what we're battling? Doubt. How many of you ever doubted your salvation? How many of you ever doubted that God even cared for you? How many of you ever done any of that? I'm convinced, and I've told y'all many times this, I'm convinced if, if God came along and told Satan, okay, Satan, you're a little too powerful for these human beings on earth. I'm going to take away all your tools, but pick two that you want to keep. I guarantee you he would choose doubt and fear. I guarantee you he would choose those two. And doubt is out there. I've never met an effective Christian or a Christian who's living a victorious life who doubted their salvation, who doubted who God was, who who believed lies about God instead of the truth, who believed lies about themselves instead of the truth. So he brings doubt. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he who calls you is faithful who also will do it. Here's another one, fear, that second thing I told you. Psalms 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me in the midst of it all. In the midst of it all. I can't tell you how many people right now are living in fear. A lot of people. Probably more than I've ever seen since I've been a pastor and being engaged in people's lives. People are living in fear like you would not believe. And we've, not, we've, been, not, we've been told not to live in fear. Our, our fear uh, should take on faith. That's what we've been called to. 
And then here's another one, temptation. Matter of fact, most scholars believe that when you look at verse 16, it's actually talking more about temptation than anything else. That he's constantly pitching temptation. There's some of you sitting in this room and you're under, you're, you're under attack. There's a temptation that just keeps coming your way and comes your way and comes your way. And let me tell you this about the enemy. He is persistent. He will just keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. He is very persistent. But listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says. No temptation has overtaken you except that it is common to man. Here's what it means when it says it's common to man. That means that for, for many of us who are sitting in this room, the same temptation you're dealing with, the person beside you is probably dealing or has dealt with the exact same temptation. He is out there. We're all in the same boat. There are common temptations that he throws at all of us. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're capable of overcoming. He, he'll give you what you need in your time of need. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That you can stand up under it. No matter what he shoots your way. But you know something? I've seen many Christians go down on the battlefield when one of those errors gets through. And they're defeated by it. They live in guilt. They live in shame. I mean, there's all kinds of things. And I've seen many Christians, and they, they don't just stay there for a while. Some of them have been there for decades. Hurt comes into their life. Unforgiveness springs up in their heart. Bitterness comes out of nowhere, and all of a sudden, they're there on the battlefield, laying there, wounded. And they don't know what to do for many, many of them. That arrow gets through Next, we have the helmet of salvation. If you look here on the screen, you'll see the helmet there. And, of course, the helmet is obvious. Look at verse 17. It says, and take the helmet of salvation. Uh, for obvious reasons, the Roman soldier wore a helmet. Uh, of course, a blow to the head with a club or a sword would easily result as instant death. So the helmet was made of leather and brass and lined with either felt or a sponge for comfort and a tight fit. And so that was part of... Uh, of, the, of the, the, the gear that was used. I remember when I was in the seventh grade, I've told some of you this story. I was in the seventh grade and I was going out for, for uh, what used to be back then junior high football. How many of you came through the junior high days and not the, the middle school days? Yeah, junior high, that sounds more official, doesn't it? But anyway, so I was going to try out for the junior high football team and I go in there and, well, that summer before, the reason I even wanted to try out is I went through my grandparents' old stuff and I found this chest and I opened it up and there was some football gear in that chest and so I took it out and I remember my uncle played uh, football he's a, a very effective defensive or I mean offensive lineman big old guy and, and so I pulled that stuff out and and I put it on and I mean I would run through the neighborhood with the football gear I was bad you know so there came the time to try out for junior high football and so I got this gear on. I mean, I thought there'd be a little more to it. I mean, it was a little, you know. So anyway, I had all that on there. And, and the first practice, I showed up with the football gear, and no one else had any. They were laughing, but I could tell some of them were intimidated. I'm telling you. Coach comes up to me and says, Glisten, we're not going to go in with pads today. You can take those off. By the way, where'd you get those things from? I said, I found them at Grandma's house. <laughs> So the, the practice came where they finally gave out the equipment. I started handing out the equipment. They came to me. I said, no, I have my own. Thank you. 
And so, so anyway, I put on that equipment. It was the day in which we were literally just going to go one-on-one, just hit each other. How many of you ever played football and you did that? It's very intimidating when you got some big guy standing across from you. But anyway, I was there. I was determined. Very first hit, I mean, I was so ready. I've been waiting all summer for this. I was going to try out the gear that I had that I found in the trunk of a closet. And, and I'm there, and I line up, and I go head-to-head, and I hit this guy, and I fell down, and shoulder pads cracked in half. <laughs> the helmet just split right off my head. It's a big old guy. But you know what I found out? The equipment that was issued would have gone a whole lot further than what I found at Grandma's house. It was just a little play set. I didn't know it. I was a seventh grader. What does a seventh grader know? i tell you one thing. I found out that I needed what was issued very quick. And that's what we as Christians need to realize. You see, many of us, we go out there with these little play sets. We, it's almost like what we have, uh, uh, if you've ever been here when we've done some kind of Christmas production and we have the Roman soldier costume, and there's nothing to it. It's like me out there with my plastic uh, shoulder pads and helmet, you know? But, but we need to take what's been issued to us, and that's what's been given to us when it comes to these things that God has given us. And so very quickly, our salvation, when he says this helmet of salvation, our salvation has three aspects to it. Number one, it has a past where the security is, and that's called justification. The past reality of our salvation means that we have been delivered from the power and the penalty of sin, okay? Next, there's a present application to our salvation, and it's power. And that's the idea of sanctification. It's the present reality of our salvation that frees us from the power of the sin. We can now live in the reality of what God has called us to live, and it's always going to be best for us when we choose that path. And then this is it. This is the key to, I think, what he was talking about when he talked about the helmet of salvation. There's the future and it represents the victory. And it's the idea of glorification. It's the future reality of our salvation will remove us from the battle itself. There's going to come a time when the battle's going to end. How many of you will be thankful for that? But it's going to end. And there's that whole idea of glorification. And what he's saying is put on your head that helmet, that helmet of salvation. I think it's more for this part where there is true victory that will be there. And guess where it's placed? It's placed over the mind, the helmet of salvation. And then the last piece of the armor is the only offensive weapon. We see the sword of the spirit. Look at verse 17 again. He says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the Word of God. We don't have to guess what he means by the sword of the Spirit. It's obviously the Word of God. And in verse 17, it actually refers to a dagger. And back then, it wasn't a long sword. A dagger would have been 6 to 18 inches long. The Roman soldier was trained to fight with his, this dagger in hand-to-hand combat. That's what they were, fought, they were there. So there's no guessing that the sword of the Spirit represents the Word of God. When you go to Luke chapter 4, you're going to find an amazing story. We talk about it often. Jesus has just fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's trying to get the the mind of God as it relates to his earthly ministry. He's about to begin his public ministry, and just before that happens, the enemy shows up for hand-to-hand combat with the the Savior. And you read it right there in Luke chapter 4, and and there's this jab by the enemy, and and Jesus comes back, and, and you know what he throws at him every time? The truth of God's word. 
It's God's word every time. He doesn't he haul around. He just throws God's word back at him in his face over and over again until finally the enemy leaves in defeat. But you know what it says? It says, but he only left basically for a more opportune time. It meant this. It meant that Jesus would fight, would fight this battle every day of his life for the rest of his life here on earth. That was just one of the beginnings of it all. The official battle began there. And the only way he was able to win was to continue to pitch the Word of God, the Word of God. Look on your outline. There's two words for the Word of God. This is an amazing study if you've ever never done it. There's logos, which means the total revelation of God to a general audience. That's what I believe this represents. This is the total revelation, I believe, of what God has given us. It's the logos. It's the general revelation. But then there's something called rhema. It's the specific revelation of God to an individual or a group. And y'all, that's what we many times miss. You see, God always has a word for you. All you got to do is pick it up and you got a word from God. But there comes those times, and for me, many times it's right there when I'm reading his word, that he gives me not just a logos word, he gives me the rhema word. He gives me something that just goes directly to my heart from that word in such a way that it's unique to me and what I'm dealing with. How many of you have ever experienced that before in your life? That's what it's all about. That's the reality of God's word in our lives. That's what I hope happens every Sunday that while I'm up here and I'm teaching the word of God, that I'm presenting the Logos word, but you're receiving the Rhema word. That you're hearing the word in which God wants to drive home there into your own hearts. And then lastly, look at verse 18. He says, praying always. He's, uh, I've given you the armor. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Being watchful to this end with all the perseverance and supplication for all the saints. He's basically saying we're all in this together. And there's one thing that we need to understand. We need to be in communication with one another. We need to express how we're fighting the battle. We need to talk about the battle with others. There's accountability. There's times where we need each other to pray us through. But here it is. Look at the footnote. Even though the weapons are mighty, communication is essential to the soldier. We got to communicate. Everyone knows that if you cut off the communication to the ground troops, you're not going to win the battle. And the same is true with the unseen battle. So I want to close this series with this. Look at application. To be successful in the war, we must analyze our enemy. We've been doing that for several weeks. Utilize our weaponry. That's what I introduced you to, to right now. And then realize our victory. We're fighting from a position of victory. The victory's already there. Romans 8, 37. Yet, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I want to close with a word of prayer. If you will, just bow your heads with me. Father, I just want to come to you right now. I thank you for this last five weeks, the way you've used these series of messages in my own heart. And Lord, I just pray, Lord, for those who have been here. I know that there's been a lot of encouragement about what you've shared uh, through your word through this series. And I just thank you for that, Lord, that we can be used in that way to, to speak into the lives of others. But, Father, I pray right now that, number one, when it comes to this battle, the victory's already been won. Father, help us to fight from the position of victory, to realize it's already there that we don't have to continue to believe the lies that the enemy throws at us, that we can replace it with truth. 
Maybe it's the truth about who you truly are. Maybe it's the truth about who we truly are in you. But either way, I pray for those that are here in this room who know you as our Lord and Savior, Lord, that they would just come to the conclusion that they need the battle gear to stand up, to be a victorious Christian, to live in the reality of what you've already provided, that being the victory. And Father, for someone in this room, I don't know who this is for, but Father, I know that those arrows have been coming and coming and coming. For some of them, it's been a, the arrows of fear. Lord, I just pray for them, Lord, that they would find victory in you. For others, it may be doubt. For others, it may be temptation. Maybe the temptation is greater than maybe they've ever seen in their life. And I just pray, Lord, that they will realize that they can stand up to that with the shield of faith, that they can come back with the, the sword of your word, Father, it, the truth about who they are and who you are, and that you want the best for them in this battle. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.